about the law, we live under grace, doesn't understand grace. Now, the moral demands of the law have never been abolished. God still expects His people to obey Him. His commandments did not become suggestions under the new covenant. In fact, he expects more of us. He now expects us to not only conform to the external demands of the law, he also expects us to be conformed internally to the image of his Son. And that's why Jesus said it's not enough to be able to say, I never murdered anyone. He expects us to control our anger to reconcile our brother, and to befriend our opponent. We discovered that last week. Well, today we're going to discover it's not enough to be able to say, I never committed adultery. He wants us to acknowledge an adulterous heart. He wants us to address an adulterous life and to avoid an adulterous divorce. Now, the law was very clear about adultery. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. And adultery is defined as having sexual intercourse with someone other than your spouse. It has always been and continues to be a violation of the law of God to have sex outside of marriage. In fact, under the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by death. In Leviticus 20.10, we read, If there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Now, under the New Testament, adultery is just as wrong. But someone else died to pay the penalty for adultery. Christ died to make forgiveness possible for adulterers and adulteresses. And according to Christ, you don't have to actually have committed adultery to be considered an adulterer. If you've even had an adulterous thought, it needs to be acknowledged and addressed as adulterous. This is heavy teaching this morning. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this topic in the sermon on the mount. Continuing in Matthew chapter 5, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now you may remember that when Jimmy Carter was running for president, he confessed in an interview for Playboy magazine that 
while he had never committed adultery, he had had lustful thoughts. Well, the media responded with laughter. But Jesus doesn't. He takes lust very seriously. So what is lust? Lust isn't admiring someone. Lust isn't appreciating someone's beauty. Lust isn't even noticing someone's attractive features. Lust, when used in a context of adultery, is an excessive desire to have someone sexually. It's fantasizing about having sex with someone other than your spouse. It is undressing them and violating them in your mind. Jesus said, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. He doesn't wait for sinful activity to take place. He judges the heart from which sinful activity springs. In Matthew 15, 19, he states, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanderers. He goes to the source of our sins, and says, acknowledge that you have a sinful heart. Don't hide behind the fact that you may have never actually committed the sin. Acknowledge that sin is in your heart so it can be dealt with before it affects others. If it's in your heart, it's already affected your relationship with God. Don't let it go any further. And it's doubtful that anyone in our sex-saturated society has been able to fend off all adulterous thoughts. So acknowledge that fact. And then address an adulterous life. Even if it's only an adulterous thought life. Let's go on. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus' prescription for an adulterous heart is radical surgery. Now, he's not actually suggesting that we mutilate ourselves to control lust. Some ancient monks thought so and did so, but that's no answer to lust. A blind man can still lust. 
Losing your eyesight doesn't mean you lose your imagination. What he's saying is get rid of whatever it is that's causing you to stumble. Whatever it is that's tripping you up. The word for stumble is a form of the word used for the trip stick in a trap. If you were a kid and you ever had a little box trap to try to catch a rabbit, it's that stick that you propped up the box with. You hung carrot inside the box. Jesus is saying, get rid of the trap. Disarm the trap. Don't let something come crashing down upon you because you've left it sitting there to catch you. Deal with it. If your eyes are causing you a problem, then do as Job did. He made a covenant with his eyes. How else, he asked, could he gaze at a virgin? Apparently, he knew that if he let his eyes wander all over her, he would end up lusting after her. So he made a covenant with his eyes. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly what that covenant was. But a good possibility is that he trained his eyes to focus on her face. Maybe even her eyes, especially if her face was veiled. And that might be a good covenant for us to make as well. Now, I'm not suggesting that we'll not notice other features. But I am suggesting that we ought to discipline our eyes to focus on the face. Especially when we are sexually attracted to someone. And we are going to be sexually attracted to others. That's the way God made us. But we need to keep that attraction under control. And, I might add, that we do have a responsibility to dress modestly so as not to attract inappropriate attention to sexually stimulating parts of our anatomy. Again, there's nothing wrong with being attractive, but we shouldn't seek to be sensual, at least not for anyone other than our mate. Something else we need to address here is pornography, which, thanks to the Internet, has reached epidemic Proportions. If our eye is in the habit of gazing at pornography, we need to cut it out. Not our eye. The pornography. If you've got pictures or books or movies or calendars or catalogs that entice you to lust, get rid of them. Throw them away from you. It's better that they burn than you. And men, if you justify pornography on the basis that it's art, just ask yourself one thing. Would I want my daughter to pose like that? 
If not, get rid of it. It's pornography. Now, why Jesus addresses the hand here as well as the eye, we're not sure. It may be a reference to wanting to take something that doesn't belong to you. Or it may actually be a euphemism for the male sexual organ. In Isaiah 57, 8, it is actually used that way. And some have emasculated themselves on the basis of this verse. Again, I don't believe Jesus is advocating physical mutilation here. But he is telling us to surgically address an adulterous thought life and to cut away anything that contributes to lustful thoughts. You may have to stop watching certain shows. You may have to cancel some sports magazine subscriptions. Whatever, whatever is causing you to have lustful thoughts needs to be cut away. That's what he's saying. And then he says something else. With regard to adultery, he says we must avoid an adulterous divorce. Now, this one's a little hard to grasp hold of. So let's keep it in context and let's see what he says. And it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Divorce is not the answer for an adulterous heart. Now, some might suggest that if you've begun lusting after someone other than your mate, that divorce is the answer. That if you'll just divorce your mate, you can then marry the object of your lust and avoid adultery. On the surface, that seems to make sense. And the Old Testament did allow for divorce. In fact, in Deuteronomy 24.1, we read that a man may divorce his wife if he finds some indecency in her. Now, the Jewish legal minds were divided on, on what that actually meant. The more conservative branch held that the indecency was limited to sexual immorality. Either premarital, a man discovered his wife wasn't a virgin when he married her, or extramarital, that she had been unfaithful to him. But of course, if she had been unfaithful, she would have probably been stoned. So divorce really doesn't come into play there. The other, more liberal branch of Judaism, held that a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever, that even burning his meal would be indecent behavior for a wife. <laughs> You probably can guess which school of thought was most popular. And neither believed 
that a woman could divorce her husband. Well, Jesus clarified things by saying to divorce one's wife except for the cause of unchastity. And the word is poinia, sexual immorality. To divorce one's wife except for sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries her after the divorce commits adultery. He also stated in Matthew 19 that the one doing the divorcing, the man, commits adultery by divorcing his wife and marrying another woman. And he says in Mark 10 that if a woman divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. The bottom line is that divorce is no way to deal with an adulterous heart. You won't avoid adultery by divorcing your spouse and then marrying someone else. That may be a legal solution, but it's not a biblical one. It may be legal in the eyes of man, but it is not moral in the eyes of God. Now, I do realize that we haven't dealt with a very important question here. The question of forgiveness after a divorce. So let me simply affirm that forgiveness is possible for all forms of sexual immorality, including those related to divorce. Forgiveness is available. And I assure you that we're going to deal further with the matter of divorce when we get to Matthew 19. Because that's where Jesus answers the questions that the Pharisees raised about it. But for now, let's just leave these two verses in their context. And the context is Jesus teaching on adultery. He is simply saying that divorce is not an appropriate way to deal with an adulterous heart. He wants us to acknowledge that adultery is not simply an act. It's an attitude of the heart. And he wants us to deal with it as such. He wants us to rid our lives of those things that stir up lustful thoughts and to deal decisively with those behaviors that feed our lusts. That's the point he's making here in the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes we read through the sermon so quickly we don't stop and realize how inflammatory it was. I'm uncomfortable preaching the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And I trust you're uncomfortable hearing it. But Jesus said it. And we've got to hear it. We've got to deal with it. We can't hide it under the rug. Acknowledge that our hearts aren't as clean as they ought to be. Acknowledge that there are things we need to cut out of our life if we're going to be pure of heart. And don't look for an easy way out 
Or you can have your cake and eat it too. Then, once we've dealt with that, perhaps there's no better advice than that given by Solomon. Now, I realize quoting Solomon in this context is a little shaky if you know Solomon's failures. But what he said to his son is right on target. In Proverbs 5, 15 to 19, he says to his son, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind, that's a deer, and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. This may not sound like something you expect to hear in church. But you know, God is not opposed to sex. He created it, and it is good. It's not the most important thing in life, and we can do without it. But it is certainly one of the pleasures He's given to us. Let's just make sure we keep it within the confines He has set so it can be a pleasure and not the means to our destruction. To keep that from happening, let's surrender our sex life and our thought life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ.